Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Good afternoon and welcome to WADA, ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to the 37th episode of ADA Live. My name is Celestia Rosda, and I am the Information Technology Coordinator for the Southeast ADA Center. Today we are talking with Steve Mendelson about employment law developments and advocacy strategies for workers and job seekers with disabilities. Steve has served in a variety of research, advocacy, consulting settings, working for the full participation and the economic and legal equality of all persons with a disability. He served as principal consultant to the National Council on Disabilities Annual Report to the President and Congress between 2001 and 2008. And he has also been my colleague at the Burton Blatt Institute between 2008 and 2013. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about employment law developments and advocacy strategies for people with disabilities or any other ADA Live program at any time on adalive.org. Steve, welcome to our show. Thank you, Celestia, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you. We're really fortunate to have you. Steve, to start out with, what are the major laws addressing the employment rights with people with disabilities? Well, there are several key laws. Uh, The first one, obviously uh, exemplified by the very title of this program, uh, is the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which was passed in 1990, which deals with uh, public accommodations, governmental services, and uh, what we're mainly concerned about today, employment rights. And the ADA is a classic civil rights law. It sets forth uh, the reasonable expectations we can have in dealing with employers in various situations. It indicates the obligations of employers to treat us fairly, and it sets up uh, a number of, of criteria for determining whether or not the process has gone adequately, and hopefully it gives us a basis for uh, understanding when something has legal implications or for developing a strategy for dealing with situations to prevent them from taking on legal dimensions. The second major law uh, is the the Federal Rehabilitation Act. Uh, The Federal Rehabilitation Act is important partly because it confers some classic civil rights on us uh, through primarily its sections 503 and 504, which determine what people who are uh, recipients of federal funds must do in regard to employment equity, uh, but it's also important because it defines the parameters of a number of the training and uh, rehabilitation systems that are available to us. It has a major role in transition services uh, for youth leaving school and entering adult services on la- and the labor market, and uh, it's recently been uh, dramatically uh, updated uh, by new legislation uh, and by new regulations, which are just uh, just been published in final form a couple of months ago. So for anyone needing vocational services through the vocational rehabilitation system uh, or, or in interacting with uh, the government's uh, uh, labor market-oriented programs in other ways, 
the Rehabilitation Act can become very important too. Then we have other laws which will come into play depending upon the circumstances. If we're talking about education, we have to think about the role uh, of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act in special education in itself and how it interacts with uh, with the ADA. And uh, if, we, if we're talking about uh, health care, we have to think about Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, these uh, latter two don't uh, impact so directly upon employment. So from the standpoint of employment, the ones we really want to focus on right now are the ADA primarily uh, and the Rehab Act secondarily. What about legal developments? Would you talk about one or two recent developments in the law and explain how they could impact members of the disability community in everyday life? Oh, yes. There have been uh, so many developments, and developments are ongoing, and uh, trends are always manifesting themselves, sometimes good trends, sometimes bad trends in regulation or in court decisions. And you always have to think about the law not so much as a single event but as a conversation. Too often people will read a case and uh, either be very happy or very disappointed depending upon uh, its reasoning and its outcome, uh, but will tend to think of it in isolation. Uh, it's not ever to be taken that way. It's always part of a conversation. There will be another case or maybe another case next week or next year which will modify it, which will build upon it, which will agree with it, which will disagree with it. And so uh, in that light, though, we think of some recent trends that are developing uh, that seem to have some momentum behind them. Uh, and uh, the first one that I'd like to talk about in that regard uh, is are those surrounding technology. Uh, for example, now, in the case of computer technology, which is involved in almost every job to some degree or other, whether we're literally using a computer on our job or being monitored by a computer or have to access with a uh, computer system to get in and out of the building uh, through a card or otherwise, or, or as is extremely common now, uh, have to use an online uh, job board, which is ultimately a computer system, in order even to apply for the job. Uh, and it's the rise of these online job, board, job boards and uh, automated uh, electronic job application systems that has posed particular, uh, particular accessibility issues for many people with disabilities. There are many uh, kinds of disabilities that can be impacted by these systems so far as accessibility is concerned. And these systems, I guess it's best known for people who are blind or who have low vision, but it's true for people with many other disabilities as well that various aspects of these systems can uh, interfere with their ability to participate in the job application process. So it's very good to know that, for example, the federal government has begun uh, under the auspices of its uh, power to uh, uh, implement Title I of the ADA uh, uh, in respect to the activities uh, of local governments. It's very interesting to note and important to note that the federal government has begun in 2015 uh, to require uh, municipalities, counties, and cities to make their uh, job application systems accessible to people with disabilities. Uh, implementation of that is a very complicated is a very complicated matter, and one might think that uh, it's a matter that can be dealt with by generalized rules, but it's hard to because there are so many local variations that it all too often becomes a sort of a case-by-case matter, and it's going to be up to advocates to help enforce that by reminding their localities that uh, there are requirements for accessibility in these job application systems and by helping the localities to find resources to achieve greater accessibility where it's lacking, and in some cases where nothing works in that regard, to let localities know 
that there is a potential federal involvement if they're not able or willing to to solve the problem. And it's in respect of the advocacy leading up to, including if necessary, but hopefully not being necessary, to contact the Justice Department and file a complaint. It's hopeful that that this will bring about some good results. Otherwise, you run the risk of being screened out. And the ADA is very clear that you cannot use procedures to screen people with disabilities out, whether that's your intention or not. If that's the effect, and particularly here where it's a foreseeable effect, it's not good enough to say that wasn't your intention. Another area in the technology domain, uh, which is very important potentially, hasn't received a lot of attention yet, and the case as a whole may not be fully resolved. Hopefully it will be, uh, if it hasn't already, hopefully it will ultimately end uh, in favor of the of the plaintiff. But it's a case uh, out of Maryland uh, called Reyesudin versus Montgomery County. And it's a case of, uh, of a woman who was an employee of a uh, county uh, call center who was unable to retain her job initially because the county decided to develop a call center that was inaccessible and then refused to make the modifications in design or implementation that would allow it to be accessible to her and that would allow her to continue doing her job. But it was an extremely complex and lengthy litigation. I won't go into all the details, but the main thing I want to bring up is something that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit uh, said in its analysis of the case. And this is uh, applicable to technology beyond the accessibility setting. It's in a situation as we have today where Companies are always upgrading uh, and always making technological changes to include, increase and improve their productivity, as indeed they should, and no one would ever, would ever uh, question the wisdom of doing that. But uh, there are implications for workers with disabilities that have to be considered both in terms of training, in terms of accessibility, uh, and in terms of a whole variety uh, of other relationships that go along with that. What the point here is is that the court was called upon to decide what would constitute an undue burden or how to go about calculating undue burden? Why does that matter? Well, the law says, the ADA says, and the, actually the Rehabilitation Act says as well when it's applied to firms receiving federal financial assistance, that basically you don't have to provide a reasonable accommodation if it's not reasonable, meaning, among other things, if it constitutes a fundamental alteration or would constitute a fundamental alteration in the operations uh, of the employer, uh, or if it was uh, unduly difficult, if it, it constituted an undue burden. And, of course, the main, not the only, uh, but the main criterion for determining undue burden has always been a financial one. Well, the law is very helpful and not so helpful at the same time in that regard, because the law gives us a list of what criteria need to be taken into account in deciding what is an undue burden, the size of the entity, the number of people working there, the nature of the activity, the cost, and many, many, many things. It's a laundry list of factors, all of which are particularly relevant. But the factor that the Court of Appeals here uh, focused on, which has not been emphasized before in a lot of cases, but which I hope will get some traction, is this. You can't really consider the question of undue financial burden by looking at the cost of the reasonable accommodation in relation to the uh, um, amount of money expended by the employer on the function or service which you're seeking to get an accommodation for. You have to look, in the case of a technological upgrade, at how much money the employer hopes to save or make as a result of the upgrade. Now, in this case, the county had postulated that uh, the new call center 
would uh, save it millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. And again, quite worthy that they should do so. But against that figure, the potential cost of the accommodation to make the new system accessible, uh, probably $100,000, really wasn't very much in relative terms. Now, if you had looked at how much they were spending on the upgrade, obviously the amount they were spending on the upgrade was much less than the amount of money they hoped to save on the upgrade. Otherwise, they wouldn't make the upgrade. So you get a very different percentage, a very different uh, cost-benefit equation when you look at it that way. So it's very important that the court did, and it emphasized that was a proper question to ask. And I'm very hopeful that uh, you'll see uh, much more adoption of that kind of a standard by other courts. The third area of tremendous change that I want to talk about uh, and that I think we should all be very proud of is movement, major movement, in the area uh, of the rights of sub-minimum wage workers, that is, uh, uh, people employed in what have traditionally traditionally been called sheltered workshops. There was a tremendous decision by a federal administrative law judge in the Department of Labor just earlier this year uh, in the case of Maggers versus uh, Reed Industries, and it involved the methods by which the subminimum wage levels for these workers were calculated. And uh, under the federal law, and in this case the applicable law is yet another statute uh, called the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, that law allows certain people to be designated or certified by the Department of Labor as uh, eligible to be paid a wage lower than the minimum wage on the alleged grounds that uh, their productivity is lower, and therefore they shouldn't be paid the minimum wage, and also partly on the alleged ground that uh, although they're working for ways, they're also receiving rehabilitative or other services uh, in the in the facility uh, where they're working. Well, it turned out in this case that the uh, administrative law judge was very skeptical about the methods used to evaluate the productivity of the workers, and that therefore the uh, circumstances under which they were tested, the equipment on which they were tested, the training they got on the equipment. Uh, and even the com- comp- competitive or comparable comparative standards used were all open to question. And the judge was able to rule that uh, these workers uh, were not appropriate for the kind of uh, subminimum wage certification that, that they had been routinely uh, receiving, that the institution had been rece- repeatedly obtaining uh, on their behalf. Uh, and again, it's a very important decision if it is followed. And again, we hope it will be. It's going to open up tremendous opportunities for sub-minimum wage workers to get a, a living wage, at least a minimum wage. Uh, and it's also going to ho- open up opportunities to that, along with some other things that have happened in the way of Justice Department settlements with states like Rhode Island and Oregon uh, under a decision called Olmstead that we really can't get into now. But in the wake of uh, those activities uh, and the wake of some other things that are going on, we really hope that can't look forward to the abolition of sub-minimum wage work in favor of competitive paid work. If we can't look forward to that in the near future, as I wish we could, but if we can't, then at the very least, as an interim matter, we can look forward to better wages for people who are serving in those environments. I really like the analogy of the law as a conversation that really struck a chord with me. Could you discuss a couple of issues that are emerging and may prove important to people in the near future? We've talked about some of the legal developments, but what about some emerging developments? Uh, yes, Lestia, there are uh, always uh, emerging issues, uh, and there are always new ones coming along, but three very important ones that I think uh, have already come to the fore and will continue to be important uh, for the foreseeable future are these. 
Uh, first, affirmative action. Uh, there's nothing uh, in the ADA except for a few very narrow contexts uh, about affirmative action. There's nothing in the ADA that requires affirmative action. There's nothing in the ADA that bars it for people with disabilities either. And that's very important because often when we think about affirmative action, we uh, think of the uh, uh, fact that it might be uh, illegal in certain contexts, unconstitutional in certain contexts, but there's no issue of that kind with disability. Uh, And so uh, it's very important to consider the possibility uh, of using affirmative action in those cases where it might help to uh, bring about greater participation of people with disabilities in the workforce. As we know, the participation level of people in the workforce today is very, is very, very low, uh, and uh, uh, affirmative action is one way to deal with that. One very interesting context where that has been done recently is under a provision of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, Section 503, uh, dealing with federal contractors, and that is a section of the law uh, of the Rehabilitation Act where affirmative action uh, is uh, is allowed. Uh, it took a long time to figure out how to do that because it's also illegal to ask people uh, before they're hired if they have a disability. So many people who needed accommodations in order to qualify for the job, in order to be able to do the particular job, uh, didn't want to ask for it because they didn't want to reveal they had a disability, and the employer couldn't ask them before a job offer was made, uh, and even then could only ask very limited questions, uh, lest, uh, lest the employer violate the law. So now they've sort of figured out a way that employers can give people an opportunity to voluntarily disclose a disability uh, in the job application context or afterwards if they need an accommodation. Uh, And uh, that is sort of hopefully going to be a way that we can uh, implement the affirmative action provisions of Section 503. So that's the uh, first area. Uh, The second area that I'd like to talk about is the area created by the new economy, the so-called gig economy, the so-called sharing economy, and that's the situation faced by contract employees. These are people who, who work in all kinds of contexts, from from being Uber drivers uh, to being uh, sometimes clerks in fast food restaurants uh, to all kinds of things. Uh, but, the, but they're not technically employees. They're contract employees, not regular full-time employees, as we've traditionally understood that term over the years. Now, why does this matter? Well, under the ADA, it matters quite a bit because the ADA, Title I, provides protection against discrimination to employees. It doesn't provide protection against discrimination to contractors, at least not clearly so. So the question that courts have begun to have to deal with is uh, who is an employee and who is a contractor? And that's not a very simple question. A lot of people believe that that is simply a function of what the parties decide should be the case. And, of course, uh, as a practical matter, that means what the, quote, employer decides should be the case. Uh, But it's not that simple. Uh, the law, uh, depending on the reason for which you're asking, depending on the context, uh, uses various tests to determine who is an employee and who is a contractor. And uh, that matters for a variety of purposes, as we know, including who's responsible for paying the taxes, obligation to provide employee benefits, and so on. But it also matters very much from the standpoint of, of whether the anti-discrimination of title, provisions of Title I of the ADA apply. So that's being battled out in the courts now, and there are decisions on the particular fact patterns of each situation, some holding that the person is an employee, some holding that the person is a contractor. Uh, uh, that's going to become more and more important in the coming years as uh, contractors, temporary employees, 
and so forth become a larger and larger part of the workforce as I suspect they will they will become. Uh, the third issue I want to talk about is hopefully a positive one, and that is the enactment of the uh, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, WIOA. And WIOA includes the Federal Rehabilitation Act. And the Federal Rehabilitation Act is the law under which a variety of vocational rehabilitation services and other uh, government uh, uh, labor market-related uh, services are provided to people, including people with disabilities. And uh, uh, what WIOA does is make a number of changes uh, in the vocational rehabilitation system for people with disabilities. Uh, the rules are just being rolled out now. The, uh, a major chunk of the final rules have been published and will go into effect October 1st, January 1st. Uh, and uh, it will take time, of course, to see what their practical effect is. But some of the important ones are that uh, under WIOA there's a much greater emphasis on employment per se. Uh, that is, that is uh, uh, That has always been the goal, broadly speaking, of employment services for people with disabilities, but it's a much more tightly defined goal. A lot of the uh, quality of life uh, outcomes that had been uh, uh, tolerated or used before to a certain degree will no longer be so readily available, and uh, the services will be more and more calibrated in terms of what's available to the actual goal uh, of obtaining employment within a specific period of time. Also, there's going to be much more attention under WIOA to services needed by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and there's going to be much more attention under WIOA to transition services. Now, we know there are many transition points in the lifetime, but the particular transition that most are con- of most concern here is the transition from school to, uh, to uh, post-school adult services, either higher education or employment, hopefully in many cases given the overall thrust of the act of employment. So the way that plays out uh, and other changes in WIOA the way they play out over the coming years that come to effect will also be important for affecting people who receive or, or who need vocational, re- vocational rehabilitation or other government-funded labor market services in order to obtain, maintain, or advance in employment. And that would include people who need assistance with technology uh, and other kinds of specialized uh, services or training. Thank you, Steve. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about employment law and advocacy strategies or any other ADA Live program at any time on adalive.org. And now a word from our sponsors. Available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon, People with Disabilities and Employment Law, Recent Developments, Emerging Issues, and What They Mean in Everyday Life. This book by attorney and advocate Stephen Mendelson offers information about recent developments of significance to workers and job seekers with disabilities. In an understandable way, the book explains these developments, discusses their practical implications, highlights emerging issues, and most of all, seeks to enhance effective self-advocacy. Download your copy today at Amazon. Welcome back to the second part of episode 37, ADA Live. We're talking with Steve Mendelson about employment law developments and advocacy strategies for people with disabilities. Steve, let's shift our focus just a bit. Can you describe some frequently encountered employment barriers and how to determine if they have civil rights implications? Yes. First of all, it's important to think of the employment system not uh, as a single point in time, uh, but as a continuum. So when I speak of employment, and in a moment when we speak of barriers, we're speaking of the process of, of training for a job, the process of getting qualified for a job, 
through licensing requirements or, or test taking or whatever, the process of applying for a job and then the process of doing a job and then the process hopefully of maintaining one's skills and advancing in one's job. So uh, bearing in mind that continuum, I want to try to talk about some issues or barriers that can be or that are encountered uh, at every stage along that, that pathway. I think the first one we want to talk about in that regard is the question of reasonable accommodations. Reasonable accommodations uh, are the thing which uh, perhaps most distinguishes uh, vocational rehabilitation uh, and the employment uh, life cycle for people with disabilities from that for uh, other disadvantaged or marginalized uh, groups who are protected by anti-discrimination laws. Uh, Normally, we think that we want uh, an employer or a system to treat everybody equally, to treat everybody identically, to make no distinctions based on individual characteristics that we have no control over, such as race, gender, age, or disability. Uh, however, that's not always the case. And one of the areas where it's not the case is in the area of reasonable accommodations for people with disabilities. We need, uh, in contrast uh, to other uh, groups, a degree of individualization, uh, and that's accomplished very largely through the reasonable accommodation process. So at any stage uh, in the process, we're going to find that uh, uh, we may have a need for reasonable accommodations and the employer may have an, an obligation to provide them. Uh, uh, what, what are reasonable accommodations is a, is a complex question, uh, depending uh, in very large part upon the facts of each case. Uh, the law uh, provides uh, a number of criteria to be used in determining whether a requested accommodation is reasonable. Many of these are, are defenses or justifications for not providing the requested accommodation that an employer can use. Uh, those would include uh, un, undue burden, uh, uh, undue hardship, rather. Uh, that would be a matter of cost or a fundamental alteration of what goes on at the work site or what is the nature of the job, things of that nature. Uh, but uh, most important to reasonable accommodations is the process. I think we can't always guarantee that we will get the accommodations that we need or that the law will consider the accommodations we need reasonable. And the employer is never required to provide any particular accommodation. The employer is always given a great deal of discretion in what accommodation to provide where one is needed uh, and provided what the employer offers is reasonably uh, uh, calculated to meet the actual need. Uh, But the process is supposed to involve a high degree of interaction, a high degree of interactivity, uh, uh, wherein the employer or the test-giving test organization or the training organization, as the case may be, uh, will uh, work with, will talk with the employee. The employee has to initiate the process, and then the employer or other entity is supposed to respond. That doesn't always happen for many, many reasons. It might not happen. Sometimes negotiations begin and then break down. Sometimes they never begin at all. Uh, there have been a number uh, of instances in which uh, an employer's failure or refusal to participate in the interactive process at all has itself been considered a violation of the law. Uh, these are mostly in, in administrative settlements. There haven't been a lot of cases where that's the case, only where you can actually show uh, that if the employer had, had participated in the accommodation process through through discussion, uh, the result would have been uh, would have been satisfactory to you. They have much hope of making that failure in itself a ground for complaint, but it has it has happened. In any event, uh, one can and should always work 
to initiate the process where one feels it is needed and to document the process uh, and do everything possible to make the process work or uh, do everything possible to uh, document uh, where the process didn't work if that becomes necessary. Uh, now, the next issue, of course, is technology. And I know we referred to this before in our discussion of the Reusudin case and uh, uh, other technology cases, but uh, technology is becoming uh, part and parcel of almost every workplace, of almost every job. And if you don't have access to the technology, you're likely not going to be able to do the job you're likely to be able to do only a very minimal job uh, and to have very little prospects for advancement or upward mobility. Uh, and uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, we think of those issues uh, uh, in very vivid terms uh, for people who cannot see, who are printed with printed materials, or people who cannot hear or are presented uh, with oral materials, or people who cannot climb stairs pre- presented with long staircases and no other means of, of access. But, in fact, there are technology issues now affecting people with almost every disability, uh, and these are all uh, likely to be encountered uh, and are increasingly being encountered in the workplace. Uh, and uh, the complexity uh, of these issues is also something that we have to deal with. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, as technology becomes more familiar and as the price of technology comes down, that it will become more and more possible uh, to make sure that people get the uh, reasonable accommodations for technology in terms of the uh, assistive devices, the auxiliary aids and services, the additional training, uh, and the other uh, parameters of accessibility uh, that they need. Uh, The barrier there is partly employer ignorance, uh, partly employer fear, and partly the fact that technology is changing so fast now that it's often very hard to keep up uh, it's uh, uh, an issue that we have to deal with for the whole workforce, really. Our country's entire workforce uh, is facing an issue of, of being technologically challenged, uh, but it's particularly uh, poignant and powerful and universal issue almost for workers with disabilities. Given the great diversity of disabilities, how much generalization about the law is even possible? Well, that's a good question. There's always a tug, so to speak between people who want to frame the issue in terms of the practical problems and uh, specific barriers faced by people with a specific disability, people who wanted to frame the issue more generally. I guess I would say this. To the extent that the issues are one of a general nature, that is, does the employer make provision for anybody who wants to apply for a job to do so, irrespective of any disability? Does the employer require uh, medical examinations prior to making a job author, which it shouldn't or doesn't. Uh, does the employer provide insurance to uh, all employees after the same number of months of employment, or do they try not to, uh, et cetera? So to the extent that there are general provisions that are ought to be applicable to everybody, one can think of disability rights law as a general matter. But, when you, of course, when you get into the question of individual accommodations, then obviously the nature of the disability counts. Uh, As a blind person, it's not going to matter to me very much that closed captioning is available. But if I were a deaf person, the availability of closed captioning would matter tremendously, and the availability uh, of uh, audio description, uh, which a blind person might use, might matter less. Ideally, we can effectively uh, advocate for the universal things, and we can be respectful and supportive uh, of the more specific generic things. And in that way, hopefully, 
strike a balance between them and hopefully bring the cause of advocacy and full participation in the labor market forward for all of us. I have one final question for you, Steve. Yes. What is the one or maybe two most important things you would like our listeners to take away from this show? Okay. The two most important things that I I would like our listeners to take away from the show is this, is that uh, the best way to think about law, I think, uh, is by analogy to health. And by that I mean this. We all engage in practices of self-health. We all try to find, figure out uh, what we should eat, size we should do, etc., etc. We don't do this because we think we're going to be doctors. Uh, we do it so that we can uh, engage in uh, reasonable choices for our day-to-day lives and so we can know when we need a doctor. I think it's the same with law. We want to understand the law is incredibly complex it's ever-changing, and, and we can't hope we can't hope to know it all. Even lawyers can't hope to know it all. But we can know enough to get, uh, hopefully, a general sense of what kind of a situation we're in, whether we have a problem, whether we can deal with the problem ourselves, what some of the options for dealing with the problem might be in a self-help or quasi-self-help vein, uh, and uh, when we actually need to try to find uh, professional help. And we know that finding uh, advocates is not always easy, there are many, many wonderful advocates in the country in various organizations, uh, uh, lawyers and non-lawyers alike, uh, but there are never enough to deal with all the problems that come up for everybody on a daily basis, even just within employment. But at least to know when we have that need and to reach out for it. So I'd say those are the two major things, to be able to engage in a reasonable amount of self-diagnosis, if you will, of of self-help, and also to understand what are reasonable expectations and what are not for ourselves and for others, uh, to understand when we're being dealt with stereotypically and when we're being dealt with as an individual, to uh, insist upon the right of being dealt with uh, as an individual uh, and not stereotypically, and to know finally when it is that we're in a situation that, uh, because of its legal or other ramifications, requires outside assistance of a kind that, that we're not in a position to furnish for ourselves. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. At this time, I would like to thank Steve Mendelson for joining us today on WADA, ADA Live. And thank you also to our ADA Live listening audience. The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and participation in this series of WADA, ADA Live broadcast. Remember... You may submit your questions about any of our ADA Live topics by going to adalive.org. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, please contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. That's 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and confidential. Join us again on November 2nd at 1 o'clock Eastern for the next episode of ADA Live. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call one 800 949 4232 for answers to your ADA questions.